I want to talk about your faith versus the faithfulness of your God. Your faith versus God's faithfulness and how the two sort of work together. Uh, if you were to pick up your Bible and read it cover to cover, here's what you'd find. That the scripture is replete with the concept of God's faithfulness. Over and over and over again, every single book, almost every single chapter, you will find displays of God's faithfulness in the lives of his people. In fact, if you were to just open up the book of Psalms, go down the center of your Bible and you'd read through the book of Psalms, one in every four of those songs is written about the faithfulness of God. It's a big deal. Over and over and over again in scripture, God is trying to convey to us this thought, I'm faithful, I'm faithful, I'm faithful. And if it is such a big concept in the word, then it would be assumed that those people who experienced God's faithfulness in the Bible would be faith-filled, that they would be full of faith. I mean, if you saw God open up the Red Sea and you crossed over on dry land, then surely you'd have faith in the desert. If you saw God speak to a storm and calm the wind and the waves, then surely the next time you're on the same boat in the same lake, you'd be filled with faith and trust that Jesus was able to rescue from the situation. It would be assumed, but instead what we find in Scripture is the exact opposite. Instead of people being filled with faith based on the faithfulness of their God, time and time again we see the people of God filled with fear, worry, anxiety, wondering, if this, is this where it ends for me? Always concerned about whether or not God is going to step in and intervene and be faithful to his people. Now, I don't know how you operate when you read your Bible, but sometimes I can get a bit arrogant when I read the Word, and, and, and as I read stories like this in the Bible, I often find myself saying things like, come on, really, guys? Like, seriously? Like, God just opened up the sea. He, he provided manna from heaven. Every morning you wake up and you pick up this bread-like substance from the ground, and you don't think he can provide water for you in the middle of the wilderness? Come on, guys. Like, like Peter, really? Like, you, you, really, you really don't think that God can rescue you from this storm? Like, like, seriously, disciples, come on. If he's Jesus, he can provide enough food. He did it the first time for 5,000 plus women and children. Of course he can do it the second time. Like, I, I find myself asking these questions. And, you know, as easy it is to ask those questions on this side of history and scripture, here's what I've noticed as I survey my own life, and perhaps you've noticed the same thing. I am, in many ways, no different than the disciples. I am no different than the Israelites. I am no different than those in the Bible who have seen God's faithfulness displayed in their lives, yet still ask God, are you going to be faithful this time? I'm nothing more than a modern example of the same phenomenon. Let, let me let you in on, on my life a little bit today. Uh, my wife and I are walking into perhaps the most scary, the, the, the most faith-needed season of our life. Uh, I mentioned this in the first two services. I'll mention it again. God has called us over the last three years uh, to plant a church in San Francisco, California, in the Sunset District. Uh, yeah, that's awesome, and we're excited about it for sure. But I've been at the same church for 15 years, on staff for 10. All I've known is youth and young adult ministry. I've done a little bit of business as well. But the idea of uprooting my family, moving to a foreign city, risking everything, every dime I've ever made, every bit of influence I've ever had, risking it all and moving to an unknown city to, to preach the gospel, that is terrifying to me. And you know, I'm a pastor, so I should have some faith, right? I'm not saying this to, to, to alarm you, but, like, it petrifies me, the idea of uprooting everything and moving to this city. And as I've surveyed my own heart and, and I've, I've thought, okay, well, God, I know you want to do this and we're going to say yes. Here's what I've found. Based on the faithfulness of God I've, se I've seen displayed in my own life, I should have a bit more faith for the season I'm walking into. Yet I found myself lacking. I'm sorry if that's over-disclosure. 
or if that like disqualifies everything else I'm going to say today, like this guy doesn't have any faith. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we will find that when we're supposed to have the most faith, we find ourselves lacking in the faith arena. Often, even as a preacher, I find that my faith talk is better than my faith walk. I can talk a big game, but man, when God asks me to step out in it, suddenly I find myself concerned. You, you know that story in Mark chapter 6, right? Jesus, uh, he's, he's walking out on the lake in the middle of, the, of a storm, and he's told the disciples to go to the other side. And uh, in the middle of the storm, they freak out because they see him walking, and they think he's a ghost, but he's like, hey, don't trip, it's me. And, and, and Peter calls out from the boat. He's like, hey, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to step out of the boat, and I'll walk on water with you. And Jesus is like, all right, come on, homeboy, let's do it. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to, to walk on water. And for a moment, it appears as though this disciple is like faith-filled. Like this is the guy who gets it. The rest of those jokers, they're in the boat. They're not doing anything. They're, you know, they're just talking, but he's walking. But in, in, in the same breath, Peter begins to look out at the storm that's surrounding him. And the very water he was walking on begins to engulf him. And he finds himself sinking. Jesus has to reach out, rescue him, and put him back in the boat. The same guy that one second was like, hey, tell me to walk on the water and I'll do it. Two seconds later is sinking in the very same water he was walking on. Why? Same reason that so many of us are finding ourselves lacking faith in scenarios. Sometimes it's easier to talk than it is to walk. Sometimes it's easier to say I believe than to actually believe. Let's make it personal. It's easy to say God's a healer. By the stripes of Jesus, I've been healed. Until you're the one facing terminal disease, until you're the one who's been given the diagnosis, and now suddenly you have to question, do I have enough faith to believe what I'm walking in right now? It's easy to say that God is a restorer of families until your marriage is the one on the rocks. Until you're the one, student, young person, listening as your parents are arguing in the next room going, there's no way God can put this thing back together. It's easy to say God's a provider until you've been laid off. It's easy to say that God can deliver the addicted until you're the one sitting in front of the computer screen, you're the one staring at the bottle, and you're wondering, do I actually have the fortitude to stand against this thing, or am I going to fall into the same temptation I've fallen into over and over and over and over again? Sometimes we got more talk than we have walk. But in the midst of all that, we have a faithful God. We have a God that, that never leaves us high and dry, and... We read in the, in, in the word time and time again of, of his faithfulness. And so I've asked myself this question, Tim, how, how, do I, how do I have a bit more faith for what I'm facing right now? How am I supposed to overcome this thing? Let, let me ask you this. What, what do you do when you're in a situation that requires more faith than you possess? How do you respond to seasons like that? As I've asked myself the same question, as I've considered our future and what we're headed into, I've run through some scriptures, I've prayed, I've asked God for some help, and I stumbled across something a couple of weeks ago in the book of Psalms that, that really spoke to me and stirred some faith in my heart. And so uh, this is something, I, this is just us, right? I just want to share this with you today, and I'm hoping that the same thing that happened in my heart happens in your heart today, that you'd be stirred to believe a little bit more for the season you find yourself in today. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 91. Psalms chapter 91, and I, I don't even... I hope this, oh, you guys are the best. You've got these scriptures already, and I just gave them to you a couple minutes ago. These guys are awesome. Give it up for your media team and production folks. They're the best. <laughs> Psalms chapter 91, verse 1. It says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in him. 
Now watch what he does in verse 3. For he will rescue you. It's no longer him talking about himself, but he's prophesying over you. He will rescue you from every trap. He'll protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers, and he will shelter you with his wings. His faithfulness will be your shield and your buckler. Therefore, don't be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies by the day. Come on, isn't that a good scripture? Now, turn quickly to the book of Ephesians, if you can get there quickly. Uh, chapter 6, if you're not there, if you're not, we'll put them on the screens. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says this. Put on of all, uh, all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Above all, lift up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Come on, are you ready to preach at the 1145 service today? If you're taking notes, the title of this chat is, You Need a Bigger Shield. You need, come on, turn to someone next to you, say, you need a bigger shield. Come on, turn to the person on the other side, say, you need a breath mint. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's messed up. Come on, everyone, lift your hands towards heaven for just a moment. We're going to pray as we get into this. Jesus, we love you today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. Today, God, we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in our circumstances, we don't trust in even uh, the natural things of this life that we lean on. We trust in you for whatever we're walking through. And I thank you that as we gathered in this place, it is your desire to see us change before we leave. I say this every time, but Lord, we did not come to this room to sing some songs and to listen to someone pontificate his ideas or her ideas about what the Bible says. We came here today because we actually believe that your presence and your word have the power to change us. So change us today. Change our minds. As it says in Romans, change the way we think. Let us not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we leave this place today so that we can think differently and believe differently for the situation we face. In your name, amen. 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 Uh, how many of you have uh, sons? Anyone parents of, of young boys? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if you raise young boys, or even if not, you've probably noticed this phenomenon to be true. Uh, boys play the stupidest games. Like, if you were to find a group of young guys and you put them in a room together and say, hey, make up a game, nine times out of ten, that game is going to involve inflicting pain on each other. That's just what guys do, right? We find ways to hurt each other. It's, just, it's, it's always been that way. I remember being a young guy, and uh, we used to play some of the stupidest games on the planet, and the whole purpose was just to hurt the other person. Like, we play games like dead arm or dead leg. Anyone ever heard of this game? Literally, the whole point of the game is to hit somebody in the shoulder or the leg as hard as you possibly can till that extremity is no longer usable and the last person standing wins. That's the game. Like, this is what boys do. Uh, quarters, an oldie but a goodie, right? Spin the quarter, keep it going. If you can't, you got to put your knuckles on the table and the other guy gets to slide it across the table and make you bleed. Great game. Really, really good. Uh, and I remember when I was younger, even if we got bored and we, we, we didn't want to play quarters or dead, like, we would like find ways to hurt each other. I was at a friend's house. Uh, and one day we stumbled upon a, a pump-action BB gun. And we found a game, literally the whole purpose of the game was to stand against the fence and see how many pumps it would take to draw blood from the other person. Like, that was the game. We were so, 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 so dumb. Now, it would be assumed as you get older and you mature that, that you would do just that. You would get older and, and you would mature. But, but actually that isn't what happens. As you get older as a man, you just find more creative ways of inflicting pain on each other and, and the games continue. Case in point, uh, I remember being a 12-year-old kid and uh, my parents had invited this 21-year-old intern to live with our family. 
And, uh, I, you know, I thought he was the coolest guy in the world because uh, I'm young and he's older and he's, he's doing stuff I could never do. And so I always wanted to hang around him. And I remember one weekend he invited some of his friends over from Southern California to hang out. And uh, I was the young kid who, who just wanted to be around all their games and all their activities. And in the middle of a, we were in my living room playing pool or something like that. And in the middle of, of nowhere, one of the guys in the back of the room, he says, open chest. Now, if you've never heard of open chest, here's how this game works. You literally just hit each other in the chest. There's the rules, okay? Like, you just beat people as hard as you possibly can in the chest. And the only way to, to not get hit is to guard yourself like this. But everybody's waiting for you to put your arm down because the second your arm is down, you're left unshielded and anyone can hit you at any time. So if you go to the fridge and open up the fridge, there's somebody there waiting to hit you. If you turn a corner, there's somebody around the corner that waiting there to hit you. Now, as he yelled out, open chest, I'm the 12-year-old guy who's never played the game in the corner of the room. And all these 21-year-olds run across the room and begin to pummel me as a child in my own home, okay? <laughs> so I'm like bruised and, and crying in the corner. And, and this game, by the way, doesn't have any clear end. So it can go on for days without anybody realizing it. And for days, I would come around the corner of, of, of my room or into the bathroom, and there would be somebody there waiting to hit me as hard as they possibly could. 21-year-old guys versus a 12-year-old kid. That's messed up, okay, just to be clear. So finally, after days of getting absolutely beat up, my, my, my dad comes to me and says, hey, I have a plan. I'm like, yeah, I have a plan too. Kick out this intern who's beating on your only son. Why would you let this moron live at our house? Like, do you love me at all? He's like, no, no, I have a better plan. I'm like, okay. So he takes me upstairs. And uh, he goes down to the kitchen, and he grabs a cutting board. Comes back upstairs, and he says, someone already knew where this is going. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says, hey, you know, all week long, these guys have been waiting to hit you around the corner. Uh, and in just a moment, when you walk downstairs, they're going to assume that you'll be unprotected. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go downstairs, and I'm going to tell them, hey, when Timmy comes downstairs, there's a good chance he's not going to be guarded. You guys should wait around this corner to hit him. I'm like, Dad, I'm concerned that this is the way <laughs> your, your, your plan is working. No, no, no. But in the meantime, I want you to slide this cutting board up underneath your shirt. And so when you go downstairs and they're waiting, all you got to do is let your shield down and let them go. I'm like, game on. So I don't know if you've ever had this moment if you live in a two-story, but you know when your kids really want you to hear them coming and so, like, they make extra noise? So my dad goes downstairs. He delivers the news to these, these guys. And I come down the stairs like, oh, I hope nobody's waiting around the corner for me to hit me as hard as I can in the chest. And as soon as I turn the corner, there are three guys waiting there like arms drawn, ready to go, and as I turn, all three of them just slow motion, light into me, and I hear knuckles cracking and blood flying, and I'm just standing there like this. <laughs> 12-year-old versus three 21-year-olds, and all three were crushed. The hand of my father and his great advice. Come on, how many grateful for a dad like that? <laughs> Willing to inflict pain on your enemies, yes. Justice is mine, says the Lord. Now, I tell you that story for a purpose, not just to have fun, but I tell you that story because here's what I believe to be true for many of us in the room today. I think that there are many people here, if you were to survey your life, if you were to, to glimpse in the spirit, you would find that you are in a prolonged game of open chest with the enemy. It feels like every corner you turn, every time you try to step out, the enemy is just there waiting to take out vengeance on you feels like every time you take two steps forward, you get hit three steps back. feels like no matter how much progress you try to make, you just find yourself stuck getting beat down time and time again. 
And just as my father took me into an upper room and he began to give me a strategy so that I could stand against my enemy, I believe that by the Holy Spirit today, there are going to be some people in this room that are going to be equipped so that you can stand against your enemy finally. So that you're not going to get beat down when you leave this room again. You're not going to go around the mountain for the third or fourth time. You're not going to find yourself in a prolonged season, but you're going to shield yourself from your enemy so that you don't get taken out. You need a bigger shield. Ephesians chapter 6 says it like this. We are to stand against our enemy. And having done all, we stand. How? Well, Paul tells us we put on the full armor of God. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the belt of truth. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in the midst of all of it, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, above all else, take out a shield. A shield of what? A shield of faith. I happen to have such a shield today. <laughs> and he says, with this shield, you can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. With this shield, you can overcome the things the enemy is throwing in your direction. See, if we could get a glimpse in the spirit today, here's what you would see. If we could pull back the curtain of reality, we would find that you have a real enemy that is hurling some stuff your way. He's throwing some fiery darts at your life, and every single one of those darts has a different name on it. One might be divorce. Another might be shame. Another might be addiction. One might be unemployment. One might be lack. Go down the list of things the enemy is throwing in your direction. But with every dart that comes your way, the Bible says that you've been given a shield called faith where you can extinguish those darts before they take you out. And some of us have gotten really, really good at this. If you've been following Jesus for a while, you know how to use this shield. You know how to wield the shield. In the midst of it, the fiery dart of sickness comes and you're like, no, 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 not I. Jesus has healed me by his stripes. You know, lack comes. My God shall provide for every one of my needs. According, you know, and when we, we get this. You got the sticker on the back of your car. You listen to Caleb. You got the fish. I mean, you get it. Like, you know how to wield your shield. But, but allow me to ask a question that might seem irreverent in light of the apostles' admonition of Ephesians chapter 6. But I think it's a question that we've all asked in one way, shape, or form. What do you do when you're out here just trying to fight the good fight of faith? And shield yourself from the enemy. But it feels like your shield isn't large enough for the darts that are coming your way. What do you do when you've prayed every prayer and you believed for healing, but the family member still died? What do you do when, when you've prayed every prayer about the provision of God and you still get the foreclosure notice? What do you do when you're still unemployed? When your family members still aren't saved? What do you do when... Fatigue and disappointment cause you to lay down your shield for a season and you just find yourself getting blasted by the enemy. Or, or let me ask it like this. What do you do when you're fighting and you feel like everything's going well and then something hits you from the side or from behind? And you're just fighting for your, your purity and then all of a sudden the diagnosis comes. You're just fighting for your family and then all of a sudden the job notice comes. What do you do when you get hit out of left field and you didn't expect it? What, what do you do in those moments? How, how do you shield yourself from that kind of stuff? Uh, there's a, a young man by the name of Max who goes to our Napa campus. And um, 
couple of months ago, I was over there preaching a sermon, and, and uh, at the conclusion of the sermon, he came up to me and he said, hey, I really need to talk to somebody. Can I talk to you for a little bit about something going on in my life? And I said, sure. So service ends, and we go to the back of the room, and he's noticeably moved. Something's going on. And uh, at first, I just assumed, okay, it's teenage stuff, no big deal. But as he began to tell me what was happening in his life, I, I just I found myself, like, shocked and, and in tears. He said, hey, I've been coming to church for about a year do my best to serve God. I'm running after God. I'm believing for my lost family members, praying, and I've been praying for my brother. I really believe that God wanted to heal and save my brother. So my mom and I, we went away on a trip for a couple of days, and we came back home. We walked into the house, and uh, when we walked in, we noticed that everything was kind of in disarray. The couch was out of order. There was stuff all over the ground, and first we thought maybe we got robbed or something, but then we walked into the master bedroom, and there I saw him, my brother. He had he'd committed suicide, and there was a note right there on the counter. He, just, he, he failed and lost his battle with, with depression and drugs. He's like, I, I don't know how to process this. I, I don't know what to do. And, and, and P.S., you can never be trained for those scenarios. Like, there's no prayer or scripture you can quote that heals anything in that moment. You just cry and hold and believe together. And that's all we did. We prayed. And I said, man, keep me in the loop. Let me know how, how things go in your life. A couple of days ago, when we were at camp, I saw that young man at camp, and he's a big smile on his face, and he's running around having a good time. I said, Max, how you doing, man? And he said, Tim, the very thing that should have taken me out and drawn me away from God has actually caused me to run full force to the arms of Jesus. And I'm running after God like I never have before because I got nowhere else to run. And I celebrated with him, and it's awesome, but listen... Let me tell you what what Max stumbled upon, the secret that Max stumbled upon that some of us need to be aware of today. Let let me tell you about a family named Rich and Hillary Harris with a daughter that they've been believing for healing for, and yet three years have passed and they haven't seen much progress at all, yet they're in our church every single week, hands lifted, leading worship. Let me tell you what those of us who've gone through some seasons in life and we've experienced some defeat and we've come against the enemy, but here we still stand in the presence of God with hands lifted in worship, believing that God is still able in the midst of our circumstance. Let me tell you the secret we've stumbled upon. When you find yourself in a scenario where your shield is inadequate, where you can't quench every dart coming your way, friend, you need a bigger shield. You need to get behind something that is greater than your own faith. You need to get behind something that is greater than what you possess in that moment. You need a bigger shield. Now, that sounds ethereal, but let me make it practical. Psalms chapter 91, the writer says this, those who live in the shelter of the Most High, they're going to find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I declare this about the Lord. He's my refuge. He's my safety. He's my God. I trust in him. He's going to rescue you from every trap. He's going to protect you from deadly disease. He's going to cover you with his feathers. And then watch what he says in Psalm 91 verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. His faithfulness will be your shield and your buckler. Therefore, don't be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrows that fly by the day. Watch, watch. Perhaps this writer was prophesying something that Paul would write about in Ephesians chapter 6. Yeah, there are going to be some arrows that come your way. But you don't have to be afraid of the arrows that come your way because there is a greater shield that you can get behind. Something that will cover you in the midst of the enemy's attack. See, at a glance, the scripture appears to just be redundant. 
Many times in scripture we read things being said twice, and, and that's the, the writer's way of saying, hey, pay attention, there's something important here, just pay attention. But it would be assumed at a passing glance that this guy is just saying, hey, God's going to be your shield. But he says it in two different ways. He's going to be your shield and your buckler. But in fact, there are two different shields that the writer is mentioning here in the scripture. One is the buckler. It's the circular shield that a warrior would use in battle. A directional, small shield that can do a decent job as long as the arrows are coming from one direction. But the second shield is a word in the Hebrew called sochara. Someone say sochara. Impeccable Hebrew. Good job. Sochara. And sochara means to be completely covered by, to be completely surrounded by, Nothing of the warrior is left exposed. In fact, some translators, as they wrote out this verse, they, they, they translated the word body armor. If you read the New Living Translation, which I do, it's called body armor because they wanted to convey this thought. From the top of the head to the bottom of the feet, there is nothing left exposed. Everything is covered so that no matter what direction stuff comes at you in, you are completely surrounded by this shield. Now, that impressed four people in the room. That's awesome. So, let me explain to you why the revelation found in Psalm 91 has helped me and perhaps why it can help you today. Many of us are fighting our battles of faith with only one shield. And the only shield we have is this shield called faith, meaning our victory is contingent upon our belief for that season. And if I can believe enough, then I'm going to see victory. But the second my faith becomes inadequate for the season I'm facing, then I find myself being taken out by the enemy. We're fighting with a singular shield. And you will know if you're fighting with one shield, if you've ever made statements like this, if I could just believe a little bit more, then perhaps I'd see breakthrough. If I could just have a little bit more faith, then perhaps I would be healed. If I could pray with a little bit more faith, then perhaps my family could be restored. Let, let, me, let me expose one of the most broken theologies in the church, and if you've bought into this, please hear the heart of God today. There are literally people out there that have made statements like, well, if you just had a little bit more faith, then maybe your family member wouldn't have died. If you had just had a little bit more faith, then maybe your kids would come back to the house of God. If you just had a little bit more faith, then maybe your circumstance and your situation would change. That is to say, you're only going to be victorious to the point that you believe. But the last I checked, my God is actually greater than even my faith in the circumstance I find myself in right now. The last I checked, it's not about how much I believe, but how faithful my God is. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13 says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Yes, even if I'm in a situation where I'm like, hey, I really believe, but I kind of still doubt. I really hope, but I'm not sure if it's going to come out my way. You serve a God that is greater than your faith, and his shield is greater. It's all-encompassing. It's all-protecting. So even when you don't believe, he still surrounds you with his goodness. He still surrounds you with his provision. He still surrounds you with his healing. His faithfulness is a shield about you. Mark chapter 9. You've heard the story. God brings his young, his young boy to the disciples and says, hey, can you pray for my kid? The guy's sick. He's got epilepsy. He throws himself into the fire and the water. Disciples pray. Nothing happens. Same guy brings his son to Jesus. And he's like, hey, I brought this kid to your disciples. And, man, they, they, don't, they don't have the sauce. I need you to pray for him. Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, do you believe that I can heal your son? And this man says, I believe. But, help my unbelief. Now, 
if Jesus moving in your life was contingent on your faith, this story would have a different outcome. The story would read, Jesus looked at this man and said, come back to me when you have enough faith for your son to be healed, and then we can talk. But that is not how this story ended. Jesus looked at this man, even with doubt still in his heart, and he said, okay, you got a little seed of faith? That's all I need. I just need a little bit of faith. And your willingness to come to me, that's all it takes. I will heal your son. I will cast out the demon. And the boy was at perfect peace. Let me talk to somebody today that is in I believe, but I still have some unbelief kind of situation in your life. Let me talk to somebody today that believes for healing, but you're still kind of doubting whether or not it's enough for you. Let me talk to somebody who's believing for provision, but you're still seeing lack in your life. It's okay. You serve a God that is still greater than your little bit of faith in this moment, and even when you're faithless, he's still going to be faithful. Come on, how many glad that we serve a God that is not waiting for us to get our act together and to stir up enough faith and to talk ourselves into it before he moves, but he is still able to surround us with his faithfulness today. You have a good God. You just need to get behind a bigger shield. Perhaps the only faith you need is enough faith to run to Jesus and say, I kind of believe, but I kind of don't. And in that moment, that's all it would take for you to get behind this shield called faithfulness. Quit getting taken out by the enemy's darts in your life. Now, if everything I just said is true, which as far as you know it is, then I think there's another question we have to ask ourselves. And as I ask this question, I'm going to ask the band to come. And uh, we're going to land the plane here in just a moment. If, in fact, we are surrounded by this shield, if, in fact, we find ourselves surrounded by the faithfulness of God, why is it then that so many of us still find ourselves getting taken out? Like, okay, I hear what you're saying up there, preacher, but man, I'm still, like, I'm still going through it right now. Like, if there's supposed to be all this body armor... And I got a lot of wounds that prove that this may not be the case for me. And I think that the reason so many of us are still finding ourselves being taken out by the enemy's darts is because the promise of Psalms chapter 91 is not written for everybody, but it's only written for a few. I don't say that to isolate people. But, but there's a pattern in this scripture we must adhere to if we want to see God's faithfulness surround us in our lives. Let me say it like this. The promise of verse 4, God's faithfulness will surround you like a shield. The promise of verse 4 is predicated on the practice of verse 1. What does the writer say in verse 1? He says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Those who live. Let me ask you today, what's your living situation like? I'm not asking if you're 35, still living at home playing video games, or if you're shacking up with your boyfriend. If you are, knock it off. As it pertains to God, what's your living situation like today? Are you one who lives in the shelter of the Most High? Or are you more of a visitor? Have you made your life his presence? Or do you kind of run to God when things get out of hand? When you need him the most? Do you pray the same and read the same when things are good? Or just when they're bad? In sickness and in health. In plenty 
or in want. Come on, if you made that commitment to your, your spouse, shouldn't we at least be willing to make that kind of a commitment to God? Do you live or are you more of a visitor? You can, you can visit all you want. Listen, God's good. You can run to him in emergency situations. That's fine. But every moment you spend outside of his house is a moment you're left exposed to the fiery darts of the enemy. This promise is only for those who live in the shelter of the Most High. Don't get out from behind the shield. It's there to protect you. This last summer, after um, five years of begging my wife, I finally got my motorcycle license. And uh, took a lot of work, a lot of convincing, a lot of gifts, uh, shoulder rubs and the whole deal. But uh, when my dad was turning 60, uh, I, I convinced her and my mom to allow the two of us to get our, our motorcycle licenses. So we're going to go on vacation a few months later so that we could rent motorcycles and, and ride around uh, the island of Maui. Uh, really cool thing for me and my dad on the 60th. And uh, so they agreed, and they let us go. And I remember driving in the car on the way to the, the motorcycle training, and I'm, like, pumped out of my mind thinking, okay, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be the best one in my class. I'm going to do wheelies by the time this thing is all over. Like, it's going to be awesome. And I show up to class, and I'm ready to get on a motorcycle. And uh, instead of getting on a motorcycle, they shove us into this classroom. And for the first four hours of the day, we do nothing but talk about safety gear that motorcyclists should wear. Absolutely amazing material. And for four hours, this woman began to tell us all the different pieces of equipment that are available to a motorcycle rider. You need a helmet, and it has to be DOT approved, because if you fall, you don't want your, your brain to get messed up. And uh, you need to wear uh, these jackets with all the body armor in the back, and in the shoulders, and in the elbows, and you wear the gloves that have the carbon fiber knuckles so that you can hit other driver's rearview mirrors when they try to cut you off. And I'm just sitting up that. <laughs> I mean, so that you don't scrape your knuckles. And you got to wear the right pants so that if you fall, they don't... They don't rip, and you need to wear the right boots so that if you fall, you're, you, know, you, don't, you don't mess yourself up. And so on and on and on and on and on it goes. And at first I wasn't impressed until she began to tell us stories of people that rode their motorcycles without such equipment and the consequences that ensued. So suddenly I got motivated. I'm like, nope, I don't want to live like that. Okay. So even though it was the middle of summer, for the first four months while I was on a motorcycle, I was doctor safety, all right? I had my helmet. I had my jacket. I had my pants, my boots, my gloves. I was, I was covered. But I noticed something. After about four months, I started to get kind of comfortable on the road. The more comfortable I got, the fewer layers of protection I really thought I needed. I found myself taking off a jacket because, well, it is 110 degrees outside. I didn't want to change into the boots and carry a different pair of shoes in my backpack, so I'll just put on some tennis shoes and I'll ride. It's just, you know, a few miles away. Man, those, those jeans look really nerdy, but you know what would look awesome if I had, like, the holes in the knees while I'm riding the motorcycle? Then I'd look really, really cool. And rocks can hit me in the kneecaps while I'm going, but I look awesome on my motorcycle. <laughs> layer by layer, I just begin to shed all of my protection. And every few months, one of my friends who loves me or one of my family members who loves me, they would send me a gentle reminder that I should wear more protection by way of a photograph of a motorcyclist they saw down on the freeway or a video they saw online. And I'd get motivated again. I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. I need to get protected. So I put back on my stuff, get on the motorcycle. But I found this ebb and flow for the last year. Every time I get comfortable, I find myself shedding my protection. Perhaps the same phenomenon exists in your life. Perhaps you find yourself in seasons where I'm protected, I'm 
covered. I'm living in the shelter of the Most High. But then as soon as things start getting good, you just kind of find yourself drifting. No condemnation today. Maybe this is the first time you're in church all summer because you've just been out doing other things and you're comfortable. I love you. I'm so glad you're in church. But man, if you want the promise of Psalm 91, if you want to live under this shield called faithfulness, if you don't want to be taken out by the enemy, you cannot be an occasional visitor to the shelter of the Most High. You must be one that sets your foot down. Says, I'm going to read just as hard when things are good as when they're bad. I'm going to pray the same when things are going well and when things are bad. I'm going to live in the shelter of the Most High. And those who live in the shelter of the Most High can find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And His faithfulness will be your shield. It's yours for the taking. Let me land with this. I know, even as I say this, sometimes in, when I'm sitting in the seats and I hear somebody up here talking, sometimes concept is great, but it, it doesn't make its way to my heart. And as best as I've been able to do over the last couple of moments and articulate this principle to you, there's still some in the room today that just need some faith to ignite in your heart about God's faithfulness. To where you're convinced when you leave this place, He's still going to be faithful in this situation. Well, unfortunately, there's no song we can sing or no sermon I can preach that will stir faith in your heart. But here's what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me tell you what the Bible says about God's faithfulness in your life. Psalm 36. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Psalm 31. I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. Psalm 57, he will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and his faithfulness. Psalm 71, then I will praise you with music on the harp because you are faithful to your promises, oh my God. Psalm 86, but you, O oh Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Lamentations 3, great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Come on, let's celebrate with some of this church. Deuteronomy 7, he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations. 1 Thessalonians 5, faithful is he who called you and he will bring it to come to pass. 2 Thessalonians 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Oh, come on, stand to your feet today. Let's celebrate God today. God is faithful. He's faithful.